The following is a presentation of the Retro Network. Two men with identities forged in the white-hot fires of the 90s comic book boom, now ready to re-examine the era where heroes became extreme and what magazine gave rise to a market of speculation. If you've got the guts, prepare to enter the world of Wizards, the podcast guide to comics. Greetings, geeks, and welcome to the collector's item die-cut glow-in-the-dark lenticular anniversary gatefold 25th episode of Wizards, the podcast guide to comics. The podcast where we re-examine the 90s comic book boom through the pages of Wizard Magazine. Still wondering if chromium is animal, vegetable, or mineral? I'm Adam. And ready to sell my soul for a ride down the bat pole, which is in no way and a euphorism for any part of Bruce Wayne's anatomy, just to be clear. I'm Michael, and Adam, that was a mouthful, that die-cut, glow-in-the-dark. Try to say that, like, three times fast. <laughs> be impressive. I've had a lot of practice reading about all the different gimmick covers, you know? They just keep stacking one on top of the other. Good point. You have had a lot of practice. But, Michael, happy one-year anniversary, or in, a, in our wizard publishing timeline, two-year anniversary. Yeah, it is, because we've done, you know, two a month, so technically, yeah, we are two years into Wizard, even though we're one year through Wizards. Just break it all down in your minds, listeners. Take it all in. But yes, yeah, so we released our episode zero in December of 2019 to introduce you to the concept of Wizards, and then we launched the show in January 2020. So this has been such a fun journey. A special thanks to Mickey and Jason at the Retro Network, Purveyor of fine retro podcast programming and nostalgic online content for giving the show a home and yeah it's just been so much fun honestly we've seen segments come and go met some amazing fellow readers who have become friends and even palled around with actual wizard staffers who have provided some amazing insight and uh, best of all michael you and i have gotten to know each other that's true, we really have. Despite the quality of comics that you make me read, I'm still having a lot of fun. <laughs> this is good news. <laughs> There's still some hope in your heart. <laughs> yes, just, just, a, I'm, I'm, I'm hanging in by a thread. Just when I'm out, you pull me back in with what you kind of tease with me every so often. Like, ooh, this sounds enticing. <laughs> I was doing a Godfather reference there, if you didn't catch that, folks. So, Adam, how did Wizard commemorate 25 issues like what did they do in issue 25 they included the 25th issue pog ooh, a shadowhawk trading card a nelson's udaman trading card sure it, it's a nonsense word i have no idea what it means yeah, it sounds <laughs> about right yeah i'm gonna go with udaman yeah sure and a Deathmate trading card. I'm sure that's worth a lot of money these days, yeah. Needless to say, Adam and I were a little disappointed by their efforts, so we decided to pull out all the stops on this, our 25th episode. 
That's right. You know, you got to go big when you get to a milestone like this. So here's what we're doing to make this a special moment for you, the listener, as well as ourselves. First of all, as you find us on your favorite podcast platforms, you'll notice that we have new official show art for the podcast. If you haven't seen it yet, we'll describe it. The design is an homage to X-Men number one by Jim Lee with myself in the Cyclops pose and Michael as Wolverine. Very fun caricature of us that comes courtesy of Eric Johnson, aka at Illustrator Eric on Twitter, who is a devoted listener, always chiming in on social media. And all it cost us to get this original piece of art was an official Wizards t-shirt. And now you can wear our new logo show art design on a t-shirt yourself. You'll be able to find our updated version of the Big Cheese t-shirt as well, a throwback to the first official Wizard magazine piece of apparel. If you don't recall this go check out our youtube page you'll find out all about the big cheese t-shirt i've gotten actually a lot of people saying to me how much fun that episode was that little youtube video and it was pretty interesting so that's pretty cool that it's been getting a lot of good feedback and the video content we've pumped out a lot of people have said they really like it and we've got so much more content to come so check that out as well next courtesy of the retro network we're giving away five 90s comics prize pack which will include a vintage pack of comic book trading cards two vintage 90s comic books a superhero lego minifigure and most exciting of all is an exclusive limited edition wizards the podcast guide to comics holominium decal <laughs> that you can slap on your long box like a bumper sticker on your car or on your t- a telephone pole if you want outside your local comic book shop. I don't even have one of these stickers yet. That's how limited edition it <laughs> is, Michael. Holovidium, it's so precious. <laughs> it's the precious, yes. <laughs> so in order to enter, just take a picture of yourself with an issue of Wizard Magazine or your favorite 90s comic book on social media. Use the hashtag Wizards25. And be sure to tag us at Wizards Comics or Wizards underscore comics on Instagram. We love seeing your faces and we want to see the joy that Wizard or 90s Comics brings to your life. This is a contest only for those who actually listen to the podcast and will not be posted on social media for those contest bot accounts to participate in. Winners will be announced on our next mini episode. Yes, so guys, we want to make sure the prizes go to the right people. So yeah, just take that picture, whatever you got handy that is your favorite comic from the 90s. You got still an issue of Wizard in your hands. Show it to us because we want to send you something special. But that's not all, Michael. We know some of you can't get enough of our 90s comics content and we want to bring it to you uh, in the most fun way possible. More of that nostalgia. But comics podcasting can be an expensive hobby. Time is money and tracking down those relics from the past ain't cheap. So for that reason, we want to give you a chance to contribute to the show and get exclusive content in return. So starting in 2021, we will be launching Wizards, the Patreon Guide to Comics. And for those of you who don't know what Patreon is, it's a service where your favorite podcasters, that's us, can accept donations from our favorite listeners, that's you, in return. 
return, we send you exclusive links to bonus podcasts, videos, and more. And you'll get to be an official member of our Wizards Cool Corps. Ooh, <laughs> interesting. Bringing it back, baby. Bring back the big cheese. Bring it back the Cool Core. <laughs> Now, Patreon will be the place to hear our monthly 90s superhero movie review series that's going to be co-hosted by Steven Sapelis from our Generation X and this current Roger Corman Fantastic Four series of bonus episodes that just wrapped up. Also, you'll get unedited episodes of the podcast right after we record them. So within 24 hours, it will go to you and you can enjoy unfiltered Michael and Adam if you can handle oh god (laughs) do you really want to listen to us unfiltered (laughs) i hope so no waiting for wizards wednesdays if you're on patreon plus you'll get private videos from our youtube page featuring content requested by you the listener and we're bound to come up with more fun ideas along the way so you just want to be part of wizards the patreon guide to comics join our cool core we will give you all the details on what you need to do to become a member in the near future for a minimal donation but you'll be helping the show to grow and you'll be getting a lot more of the show in return but you know michael back in the day to uh, join a special club you had to send something through the mail so i think it's time to open up willie lumpkin's mailbag So we've got a couple of interesting letters this month. And the first one is the magic word section starts off with a ton of angry letters to wizard people angry about the religion in comics article inferring that Christian beliefs are mythology, a gun control debate brought on by DC's Batman seduction of the gun one shot and even more complaining about the wizard inserting special chase trading cards into their magazine at random so not everyone gets one because not everybody gets a trophy (laughs) now also in the magic words section here because people just can't let things go they gotta stir it up michael uh there is a letter from a gentleman named mike who says this Dear Wizard, thanks for publishing Eric Larson's temper tantrum letter in Wizard number 23. It certainly was entertaining reading. In fact, I'd have to say the plot line was far superior to any Savage Dragon issue I've seen so far. Clearly, Eric's writing skills are growing by leaps and bounds. Perhaps someday he'll even surpass the petty and so professional name-calling stage. I especially like Eric's insightful belief that, quote, the whole Venom-Spider-Man conflict could be resolved in two panels of halfway thought out dialogue if only a writer capable of such a feat could be given the assignment end quote given eric's timely and voluminous output for image during the past year i'm sure he could handle it himself in say two or three months oh well at least eric has the guts to actually sign his letters these days like Kristen, tinton falls new jersey (laughs) so uh, you want to read wizard's response there michael Sure, why not? And I know people from Tintin Falls. So the response from Wizard goes, When we ran the Dave Michelini I Created Venom letter in Wizard number 21, 
And then the Eric Larson follow-up, Michelini's a Clown letter in Wizard 23, I expected as a much larger response than what I've gotten so far. After going through about 1,500 letters to put together magic words this month, this was the only letter that really addressed the topic. Oh, well, I guess the general consensus is, who cares? (laughs) I feel like that's your general consensus every time we read one of these letters. (laughs) Most of the time, yes. (laughs) But you asked the question, who cares? Eric Larson still cares because we posted this to our Twitter account and we made sure to make Eric Larson aware that we were doing so and his first response was I had no filter at that point. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, the truth is if you've seen him on social media, he doesn't have a, a filter now, okay? But my response was, quote In our role as judges with no authority or station, we decided to give two awards. Michelini gets credit for creating Eddie Brock in the name, but McFarlane gets credit for adding the flair that made Venom matter. But we all agreed that you, Mr. Larson, drew the most iconic Venom. To which Eric Larson responded, He doesn't get credit for creating Eddie Brock. He's a co-creator. Michelini never drew Eddie Brock. <laughs> that, but it brought up an interesting distinction that we did not really consider as the option, which is you get co-creator status. It seemed to be Eric Larson's big debate that he was creating was you cannot be the sole creator if all you did was write down some words about a character. Comics is both a visual and a storytelling and written form medium. So it always has to be a collaboration unless you are the writer-artist like everybody at Image was, right? They're literally the creators. Todd McFarlane created Spawn. Uh, Eric Larson is the creator or of Savage Dragon. He did it all. But yeah, Dave Michelini came up with an idea for a character, had Todd McFarlane draw it. So they are co-creators. They both yeah. did it together. And we didn't even like bring that up in our conversation. So <laughs> These 30-year-old wounds we stir up with comics people is pretty hilarious. I have to say. <laughs> Just doing our job. Yep, absolutely. So the next letter that we have calls out Doug Goldstein again on the Iron Man versus X-Men debate and finally responds with a definitive top 10 reasons Iron Man could beat the X-Men. All right. Dear Wizard, it's me again, the guy who first started the X-Men versus Avengers debate, which later turned into X-Men versus Iron Man that began with the letter I wrote in Wizard number 10. I decided to write again and give my thoughts about the statement Doug Goldstein made at the end of Magic Words number 22. You can't say that Iron Man could defeat the X-Men because War Machine wiped X-Force's but poorly worded yes (laughs) (laughs) we're talking two different teams and two different armors tommy vu sacramento california so pat says this again okay in an attempt to lay this overly absurd debate to rest let me drag mr goldstein back into this letter column with the instructions to put an end to this okay Thanks, Pat. You're right, Tommy. Just because War Machine did a number on X-Force doesn't mean Iron Man could beat the X-Men. Despite the letters I've read telling me why the X-Men could beat Iron Man, some of which were so stupid, I gotta tell you, mutant fans must be, as a whole, (laughs) simple-minded. 
Okay, wow. I still think Stark could whoop the X-Men easily. I've got my top ten reasons on page 226. If you read them and still think I'm wrong, well, then I'll be happy to admit that I'm wrong. Thanks for the memories. (laughs) All right, so what we have here, the top ten reasons Iron Man could beat the X-Men. Number ten... Tony Stark could buy the X-Mansion and have the X-Men evicted and arrested. Fight's over. Okay, they could probably outman the police, but sure, fine. Okay, whatever. Number nine. He's got them cool beam thingies. <laughs> no room to write Omnibeam, I guess? I, I guess know. not. Number eight. Because with great power comes great responsibility. Huh? Wrong hero there, buddy. <laughs> yeah. Number seven. Nobody likes a smelly mutie. This is uh, not going well for Mr. Goldstein. I don't know no, if he's he, making his point just yet. He's not really selling it too well. Number six. He's really nice and shiny. Number five. Because Ms. Arbogast would want it that way. Who's Ms. Arbogast? Even I have to flame on with this one. Flame on! Somebody tell us who Miss Arbogast is. I have no idea. Number four. Iron Man's fought Galactus, while the only X-Man who fought Galactus was Dazzler. And she's not with the X-Men anymore. Ooh, that's a pretty good one. Although it doesn't say he beat Galactus, he just fought him. Yeah, and did he fight, fight him alone? I don't know. Number three. Iron Man's titles far outsell the X-Men titles. What? What Dude, is he doing? <laughs> In what? Is he drinking Drano? What's just stoking that flame? Number two. Who really cares? That should be number one. If you <laughs> number one, the X Men's mentor is this bald guy. Come on, bald people, never win. Oh, Doug Goldstein, you're insulting my co-host, a bald Jeez. man. He is he is a respectable member of his community. I am balding. <laughs> <laughs> But, oh, God, like, I I assume he's doing this for a joke and not trying to, like, really validate his theory. (laughs) But, like, if you want to lay this conversation to rest, I would have done, like, a legit argument. I I think he just, he's got to keep that fire going. That is Doug Goldstein's claim to fame until he becomes the founder of Robot Chicken. They're they're legit Twitter trolls before Twitter existed. All of them. (laughs) Okay. And that is this month's Willie Lumpkin's mailbag. All right. Well, now we are jumping into our table of contents. Yes, we have a September 1993 cover date for Wizard number 25 with a special silver anniversary seal. Yes. And on this cover, okay, we have the man we've been talking about for a while, Jim Lee's Death Blow. But you wouldn't know it because he is apparently being illuminated by the blasts from the muzzle of his gun. So his skin looks looks gold he looks like a member of wetworks and i feel like this would be very confusing to the readers at this time they're like wait 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 another wetworks cover but no <laughs> it's death blow the cover is visually interesting if you think that it's a rambo meets commando cover because it's kind of what it looks like 
Yeah, but for your commemorative 25th issue, you'd think you'd want something to do with your magazine, somebody wearing the cloak again, you know, not this generic military guy firing a gun. You know, it's just like, maybe it got some attention, but to me, it's it's kind of a disappointing choice. Yeah, it's pretty lazy, if you ask me. But it's Jim Lee, so maybe that was getting people excited at the moment. More about Jim later on in the segment, which now bears his name. But for now, we're going to jump into the contents of the issue itself. Now, it was teased in Wizard News a few issues back, Michael, that Daredevil was getting a new costume. And now we have a full look at his armored design. Now, this was created by writer Dan Chichester, a.k.a. DG Chichester. And we did read one of his books earlier, Michael. I don't know if you remember way back when, when we reviewed Terror, Inc., Oh, yes, I remember. That that was a DG Chichester joint. Okay. And artist Scott McDaniel was the one who came up with the design, saying this was a directive for management to, quote, shake things up because Daredevil was being lost in the sea of silver foil covers. Now, McDaniel says he went through 25 designs before everyone agreed on what the new costume should be. Quote, My first design was pretty bad. It looked like Daredevil had bike flags wrapped around him. I tried to get that ninja wrapping look, but it didn't work. Now, the other twist is that in this story, Matt Murdock is going to make people think that the new Daredevil is someone else under the mask. In addition to this new armored look, he's going to behave with a more extreme attitude. Also, they're doing everything they can to get noticed. They're bringing back Elektra with a new look and a new persona to boost sales. So it's just like, wow, everything. But Michael, do you remember when Daredevil got his armor? Yes, and they've been doing a lot of recreations of it lately as well. Oh. There's a whole bunch of runs now that came out in the last couple of years, and they've actually recreated a similar version of this in the action figure and the Hot Toys line of of collectibles as well. The one thing that I've noticed about all of the recreations this particular one at the time has these like shredder-esque like shoulder pads and these like gauntlets on the sides of his like calves and stuff like that all of that stuff is gone but like the red and black motif that is like the red chest plate and the red arms has has come back in a lot of cases and i i really like this design minus the shoulder pads of, of shredder yeah and you know obviously we we had a friend of yours on whose dad was a huge daredevil fed back in the day and therefore he inherited the love of daredevil you guys talked about the action figure from the marvel superheroes secret wars line i personally only knew about the redesign back in the day walking the aisles of toys r us and seeing the marvel superheroes toy biz action figure where they redid daredevil with the new armor and i was like whoa wow what is this about you know and plus i hadn't really seen variant action figures up to that point so the fact that they had done you know a new version of him i was like this is pretty neat but at the time i remember people kind of making fun of it because i don't think it lasts too long it doesn't last very long in 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 that in that incarnation back in the 90s it only lasts a brief time and i think part of it is it's just it looks like it's trying too hard with all the extra like metal on him and daredevil is supposed to be like almost like nightwing and that he's like an acrobat in a way like he's so agile and everything and adding this extra 
weight to his body seems like it would be like not really suited to his fighting style in my opinion i would agree so like i said it's more intimidates everybody who's gonna fight ahead of time so he doesn't have to fight as hard (laughs) yeah but stayed on track with daredevil in an article titled a life of sin and crime we have an interview with frank miller about his return to writing daredevil with a series called daredevil the man without fear and miller says quote it's an effort by me to pull together a lot of the things that everybody has done over the years with Daredevil into a more cohesive whole, which is a very John Byrne type thing to say. John Byrne's yeah. always like, ah, oh, this guy messed it up. This guy messed it up. This is why. This is how you bring it all back together. This is what it should be. So yeah, says Frank Miller letting you know I write Daredevil, guys. All right. <laughs> I'm going to take care of it. But basically the way he describes it, he's writing scenes that happen in between stories that have been told without him so like they asked him is like they're like well is it daredevil year one he's like well it's daredevil years one through 19 <laughs> like that's the story of his early days altogether and things that made matt murdoch into daredevil ultimately but that's like a very small part of the interview the majority of the interview is about miller's love of crime comics from the 50s and how that inspired sin city that he's now doing over at dark horse and getting a lot of acclaim for so you have you read much sin city i'm sure you've seen the movie i've read volume one i have volumes like one through four let's put it this way i love it for the movies and the art i think the story is a little bit disjointed at times and it's it's hard to follow because of the way that like i actually saw the movies first before i started reading the books and so it became kind of like mixed up in my head. The other thing that I wanted to point out was I'm a big Daredevil fan. My first real foray in- into Daredevil was the Man Without Fear series. And then I jumped on when Ed Brubaker was writing him in the early 2000s. And I would kind of like go back and forth between the Frank Miller run and Brubaker's run. And I really love both those. If you take everything else away, just read both their takes on Daredevil. They're really great arcs oh that's good to know yeah i always remember seeing the man without fear books and back issue bins i just have never gotten into daredevil so i never picked them up i have a few of the stories that were preceding the costume change like the fall of the kingpin so i have some of those but but i I don't have the rest so yeah maybe i'll have to go back and check it out now the other book i know you have for sure is the dark knight returns and they ask him if he regrets dark knight returns kicking off the grim and gritty trend in comics to which frank miller replies quote it's true there have been a lot of bad imitations a lot of cases of people not getting it but no i can't say i have any regrets because i think dark knight's a real good piece of work i like that idea it's like yeah i'm not taking responsibility for the idiots that are imitating me (laughs) i did good work no shame there I think he's right. I mean, you know, it's one of those things where, like you said, they've been trying to imitate that particular because though it was grim and gritty, it, it had a story to it and there was some sort of like substance to it as opposed to just like ultra violence and, and that's it. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, there is, you know, like I said, that's why it's, it was being featured in magazines on like literary lists and things of that nature, you know, just and like he said, it all came from reading 50s crime stories, which he had a very long definition of, oh, well, this is what a crime story is versus a noir story versus 
versus this versus that. You know, he's like, these were very specific styles of stories. So good on you, Frank Miller. You you kept doing it. And then you kind of kept doing Dark Knight sequels. And maybe you should stop. <laughs> there's there's a lot of Dark Knight sequels. There's Dark Knight Three. There's another one that's like Dark Knight the the Golden Child that just came out a few months ago. It's I don't. There's a lot. There's a yeah. couple different things. But uh, the next article here is called Smash of Basham Masham, and it is Wizard's list of the 50 greatest comic slugfests. Now they have not done such an extensive list as this up to now. So this is kind of the beginning because they are sure to do many more of these in the future. But what's interesting is each of these listings features what's called the kibosho meter which i don't know if that's really like you put the kibosh on somebody i guess but not really when you're <laughs> fighting you know maybe just yeah. the basha meter would have been better i don't know i think so but it also lists the power of the matchup. They give it a power level, how intense it is, the mayhem level, and then they rate the art and finally reveal who the winner was and then list any issues where there had been a rematch between these characters. And honestly, most of the list, Michael, is Marvel because that was a common stunt in the Marvel yeah. universe, right? It's like, there, this guy's going to find this guy. Aren't you excited? Buy the issue. Yeah. Not such a big thing in DC Comics, I've come to realize, at least so the early days yeah to that point yeah it was it was a while and also there are no female heroes to be found so you don't have wonder woman versus the cheetah or anything like that they didn't do rogue versus ms marvel yeah see that would have been great they i bet they just did not have it on their minds weren't even considering it but highlights of the list include lobo being featured three times for going up against superman shazam captain marvel and guy gardner so he had knocked down drag outs with all those guys apparently this one's pretty funny it was just called everybody versus thanos from the infinity war <laughs> well, was that uh infinity war or infinity gauntlet they said infinity war issues one through six is okay. what they listed here and uh, the weird thing is so they they list like you know the matchup the mayhem level the art all of that but it's just dots it's not like numbers, so you literally would have to count one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, Ooh, eight dots. This one's three dots. Ooh, exactly. This one's six dots. Big so it's, it's really a pain. As opposed to being like like a fist icon or something like that, you know? Like, how many fists is it worth? <laughs> and there's not even that much comedy in the descriptions of the fights either, which is unfortunate. But there is an interesting one because it is the George Perez penciled and canceled JLA versus the Avengers crossover, which was supposed to happen a couple years prior but it was one of those things where they listed that like it would have been the ultimate and it takes up nearly the entire two pages of the art i guess that he drew as like a promo piece for it oh wow so it's kind of neat to see that but yeah it's like well but it didn't happen so it doesn't really count I'm on their uh their meter listing here mayhem level is all question marks yeah, it's true. But it said, in 1983, a project that might have been one of the best slugfests ever was stymied by cross-company politics. This company crossover was to feature the Justice League taking on the Avengers with great battles like Batman, Captain America, Thor, Superman. For one reason or another, Marvel and DC couldn't make it work. The project would have had pencils by George Perez, a master of handling large casts of characters. What's worse, Perez had 20 pages of art done when the project was bonged for good. Aw, it's a shame. 
That is a shame. We did eventually get it, and it wasn't what everybody hoped it would be, but that's okay. No. But the last one here, Michael, definitely gets a thumbs up for both of us. Yeah. It was Miracle Man versus Kid Miracle Man by Alan Moore. Yeah, that's a. I mean, we've talked about Miracle Man's books a few times on this show. That is a really, really good battle. And it, what's good about it is there's a long buildup in the comics till it actually happens that it makes it that much more impactful. Vicious. Yes. All right, getting into the movies here, Michael. Marvel oh is giving horror writer and movie maker Clive Barker his own comics universe called Razorline. Ooh, does seem like a weapon that Hellraiser, you know, Pinhead would have ready to go. Get you on the Razorline. They missed the mark and they could have called it the Razorverse. Yeah. Now, is Clive Barker the guy that did Lord of Illusions and that? Yeah, he did Lord of Illusions and he obviously most famous for Hellraiser and all that. Yeah. But this Barkerverse, as they also refer to it as, has a couple books at launch. Uh, the first is called Hyperkind, which features a superhero group in the 40s getting powers from an alien race, but they failed as heroes. And now, quote, a diverse group of Hollywood teenagers gets caught in the middle and winds up transformed into something more than human. And so the way they describe it is this, these other heroes failed, so now the aliens give the power to a new generation. Interesting. Yeah. Ecto Kid. I don't know how the Ghostbusters people felt about that, but uh, yeah. Ecto Kid is about a boy whose mom had sex with a ghost, and now he can see the astral world of spirits through one eye and the mortal world through the other, and everybody on both sides wants to kill him. <laughs> so it's Demi Moore and Patrick Swayze's sequel. There you go. You think it feels like Ghost? <laughs> Ghosts too, baby ghost. <laughs> But what's interesting about Ecto Kid, the only thing worth noting, is that Larry Wachowski, now Lana Wachowski, is the co-writer on Ecto Kid with James Robinson, who himself would go on to have major success writing Starman for DC in just a few years. So it's kind of a big deal. You got uh, some powerhouses there. Maybe everybody wants to check out Ecto Kid now. So uh, now the other one is called Hokum and Hex, which is described as... Doctor Strange for the 90s. Nuff said. But finally, Saint Sinner is the story of a boy possessed by a demon who is almost saved by an angel, but the demon kills the angel who sends her essence into the boy, and now he is the nexus of good and evil on the earth. Now that's, that's some high concept there. That is some high concept. Now, I managed from the quarter bins to pick up a few Barkerverse titles, and they are decent. Like, they're not terrible. They're as trippy as you would expect them to be. But yeah, but it's just like, I can see how just like a Hellraiser movie or anything else, it's, it's kind of hard for a mainstream audience to get in on this, even though he's telling us, oh, no, no, I'm, this is my take on superheroes. It's like, no, it's, it's supernatural, and it's really twisted stuff so yeah I, I i can understand it, it did last a little while this uh razor line you know group of comics but not very long it it may have also been ahead of its time think of it now like not what image was then but what image is now is a place for like you know creator owned content you have stuff like the walking dead and other books like that these kind of stories could probably work more now than then because i feel like there wasn't a huge market for supernatural type of stories as they may be now 
Well, at the same time, though, you had, you know, all the Spirits of Vengeance and Ghost Rider. So there was a like a were they corner really of the market. selling that well? Oh, like, they were they were pretty big, Michael. I think if you talk to our listeners, they'll be like, I was buying it. I was buying I it. I loved Ghost Rider. <laughs> they kept making more and more books. So that tells me they were selling, you know. But but yeah, I, I think it, it was maybe a crowded corner of Marvel to have. Like, this is our scary stuff. You know, it's like, well, there's a lot of scary stuff, apparently. Now, the next article, Teen Scene deals with the current state of the Teen Titans books, which are now Team Titans and New Titans. So there actually are no Teen Titans anymore. Marv Wolfman is, at this point, handing over the writing duties on Team Titans to the artist Phil Jimenez, who admits that he started out as a George Perez clone and ended up with the gig of finishing War of the Gods number four for the legendary artist because, you know, his style was so reminiscent but wolfman said it's just his workload is too much he doesn't have the time and he's going to continue writing the stories of the new titans and his plan is to bring in the flash wally west supergirl and robin tim drake onto the team and i was like i didn't know tim drake was a part of this new titans book it kind of makes me want to read it that's kind of cool i mean i know that he does become a part of the teen titans at some point in the future but I didn't realize it was this early on. Exactly, yeah. It feels real early. But also, he says Roy Harper, you know, who used to be Speedy... Yeah. is now a character called Arsenal, works for the government with an updated costume, and according to Rob Liefeld's podcast, apparently this was partly based on a pitch that Rob Liefeld made for a relaunched Titans book back in the day when he was working at DC, but they didn't take him up on it. You know, just the, the business side of it didn't work out. So instead, he took that design that he had for Speedy and created Shaft for Youngblood. Which is a terrible name for a comic book character <laughs> that, that shoots bows and arrows. So the funny thing about Roy Harper, I, he's one of these characters that I really like, but they at DC love to make his life as horrible as possible. So as you know, he had like the drug addiction right. thing, right? So much, much later, he's talking, uh, let's say 2007, 2008. He is a member of the Justice League, and spoilers for those who haven't read it, they have someone kill his daughter and slice off his arm and give him a mechanical arm until he essentially disappears, but they kind of imply that he almost killed himself, essentially. Oh, man, <laughs> poor Roy. He really, really like, and he's such an interesting character, and I really like him as a character, but DC just likes to destroy him. And now they just recently did the Heroes in Crisis story, which kind of picks up the thread from what happened in the early 2000s. And they have Wally West murder Roy Harper. No! <laughs> that is rough. That is rough, man. <laughs> Spoilers for everybody out there. Sorry, I just ruined about 15 years worth of comics for you for Roy Harper. But there you go. <laughs> All right. Now, 
A most wanted man is the next article, and it is in reference to Mike Manley, who is being interviewed about becoming the new artist on Batman, taking over for Jim Aparo. And this is where we get the reveal of the full Joe Quesada bat armor design that was blacked out on the cover of issue 24. And as you'll recall, DC still got mad at Wizard for revealing it within the pages of the magazine, even though they already saw that it was on covers of other magazines previews advanced comics you know but michael what do you think about this design because when i'm looking at it i'm like there's some weird like head gadgets and they look very much like the x-men villains the acolytes and i am not a fan as we've discussed and joe casada was also drawing x-factor and the acolytes in the issue we reviewed so i assume that had something to do with it so this i'll call it you know asriel batman design it kind of evolves a little bit, and this particular look I don't love because it's got this, like, I want to call it, like, Hellboy arms because the arms are so gigantic with this special mechanical armor. I don't know. It's it's just a weird, very 90s, like, hey, can you make something that looks kind of like Image for Batman? That's kind of what they did is what I feel like. Yeah, and it seems like they managed to streamline it by the time it was, you know, being printed. So, yeah. It looks a lot better when you get the full armor in Batman 500, I believe it is. Yes. But Manly himself, who is now this artist who's going to be drawing that bad armor for a while, is noted as being the co-creator of Darkhawk and was on that book for two years and 25 issues. Hey, 25 issues! But he just wanted a change. And I think it's funny because he goes about debunking rumors that he was fired by Marvel and explains that he's a freelancer. He's doing these projects at DC. He has Marvel projects like Spirits of Vengeance we were just talking about and a Wolverine limited series coming out. So he basically explains like people don't understand how freelance works. They think if you go from one company to the other, you obviously got fired. Yeah. I mean, back then it was to be a freelancer. It was a little bit more taboo than it is today where like so many artists are all freelancers because they go from project to project or job to job and so on and so forth all the time yeah but he also continues with his criticism of the readers and the industry as a whole for not supporting more diversity in comics stating quote superheroes are making all the money that's great but everyone is mining the same vein and the vein's gonna get pretty weak by now and he goes on to say quote if kids get tired of reading the new jim lee or rob liefeld stuff what'll happen to the business everybody will get hurt very prophetic words mike manley mm. and he says the best book on the market in his opinion the aforementioned sin city wow High, high praise. Yeah, Frank Miller, he is the guy. Um, now, in my continuing coverage of Jed 13's Origins, I have to bring up the fact that Gen X by Jim Lee is solicited in this issue under that original title. The first issue is supposed to be coming out with this batch of books. And we'll actually see in the next issue the updated ad featuring the Gen 13 name. And that will continue on in future issues. So I just think it's so funny. Like, they must have gotten this information several months before though then by the next issue jim lee's like no 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 guys guys it's chen 13 now and uh it's not ready yet <laughs> do, you, do you know why they changed the name yeah so i mean it had to do because marvel had generation x in the works figured, at the same yeah. time yeah so they're just like we're already working on it jim you can't do it so he decided to change it 
Now, speaking of solicited titles that were never released, Darker Image Number 4 is listed in this issue also and claims to feature a story where Rob Liefeld's Blood Wolf character, which is a Lobo ripoff, is held captive on a planet of pregnant men. Yikes. <laughs> like, what was that story going to be? I would love to see the tact with which Rob Liefeld handles storytelling laid on the foundation of pregnant men. I wonder if their pregnant bellies could be held up by their tiny feet. <laughs> Zing! <laughs> In more Liefeld news, his Extreme anthology comic series states that it will contain the continuing story of Sword and Stone, previewed in Wizard number 23. Also in the anthology, a character called, wait for it, Nightfall. Ay, ay, ay. Rob, at a certain point, it's just stealing. (laughs) (laughs) Have they ever read of a a thing called intellectual property? (laughs) I mean, I want to get that issue now just to see. Were you able to actually print a character called Nightfall? Like, I want to know what the copyright thing is. Well, that's the name of a storyline. I'm calling a character Nightfall. It's different. Oh, yeah. It's really, really different. Oh, boy. Speaking of different, we want to find out what's going on to make the movies a little bit more diverse. So, Michael, take us into... Heroes in Motion. So... Our pal Andy Mangles mentions how much comic stuff shows up on the sitcom Roseanne because the character of Darlene is reportedly a comics fan. He calls out a Neil Gaiman Sandman poster, a Death of Superman t-shirt, and Evan Dorkin's Milk and Cheese comic book. Apparently, this is due to the fact that one of the writers on the series, Martin Pascoe, wrote DC Comics in the 70s. I mean, I did watch Roseanne as a kid growing up. Maybe I noticed, you know, some of these things in the background, but they never make mention that Darlene is actually a comic books fan. They more kind of say that she's sort of like a grunge kind of kid. Yeah. You know, they don't really necessarily say that she's a comics fan, but they were kind of equating as if, like, she may not, she wouldn't have, you know... New Kids in the Block poster, she might have a Sandman poster. Sure. I, I always had a crush on Darlene, but I, I didn't understand that she was also a comics fan, because that would have just, like, amplified the crush overall. That would have put it over the top. Yeah. My first girlfriend actually looked a lot like her. I was like, oh, hey, now, I, now I'm drawing the parallels here. I have a little Roseanne story. Just I went to high school with a friend, and his claim to fame was, he's like, oh, yeah, the boy who plays DJ, I believe, was the, the young boy's name on that sitcom. He's like, yeah, I, uh, I grew up with him like we went to elementary school together we were buddies and then he got on a tv show and moved away and i was like oh that's kind of (laughs) sad speaking of comics on sitcoms bob has been renewed for a second season but is being retooled to involve less of the comic book office comedy and while the ace comics characters are being written out tim curry is joining the series as the new boss who oversees Bob's 
syndicated Mad Dog comic strip. Interestingly, the network wanted to ditch the comics angle entirely, but star Bob Newhart refused to allow this part of the show to be eliminated. There you go, Bob. Stick it up for it. He's like, this is core to my character. Comics, Mad Dog. There's so many more jokes to be mined this season. Obviously, (laughs) obviously. And did it make it past the second season? I don't think it did. It did not. Nope. I figured as much. Also, Andy Mangles provides more details about the X-Files on Fox, which he describes as a male and female FBI team which investigates paranormal occurrences. Call it Ghostbusters meets Unsolved Mysteries. Wow, Fox really did a terrible job promoting this show (laughs) as Mangles is continually providing very poor descriptions. So I also wanted to shout out friend of the show, Stephen Sapellis, his wife, Anna, hosts an X-Files podcast that has been very interesting. I've been I haven't listened to it yet, but I've listened it's to it. It's because you have to pay stuff. for it. It's a Patreon podcast, but apparently ah. it's popular enough that people are willing to subscribe directly to an X-Files podcast where they read fan fiction. It is a fantastic concept, but Michael, we should have just started out on Patreon. What are we doing? What are we thinking? (laughs) Spending all this money on eBay buying stuff. (laughs) Okay. Dark Horse Comics has two books being turned into movies. The first is The Mask, which New Line Cinema hopes will be a new franchise like Freddy, Jason, and the Ninja Turtles. We all know that Jim Carrey plays the mask until they do, you know, Son of the Mask with uh, what's Jamie, it, Jamie Kennedy. Kennedy. Uh. Yeah, but they didn't get the franchise that they had hoped, though it was ripe for a sequel. And there are rumors now that they are working on a sequel with Jim Carrey returning. Jim Carrey's back in Hollywood, baby. Yeah. Now, the second book being adapted into a movie is a personal favorite of mine. I love this movie. People will hate me for saying it, but this is one of the best time travel movies ever, which is Time Cop. And it is revealed that Jean-Claude Van Damme will star in this movie. And Jean-Claude Van Damme has never had better hair than in this movie. <laughs> the ramen mullet? Oh, oh it's dear. It's such a, it's so like voluminous. <laughs> it's unbelievable. <laughs> And you get two Van Dams in this movie. You Lucky do. you. You do. It's all not the, the Van first Dam and only handle. time either. No, it is not. Finally, there's an interview with Alex Hyde White, who plays Reed Richards in the Roger Corman Fantastic Four film, which we just covered in our four-part series. The actor reveals that he went to a Los Angeles comic book shop to research his role, where he found a reprint of the first issue. Hyde White mentions the limitations of the budget, but he champions the heartfelt efforts of the crew, stating, we have not done the definitive Fantastic Four. We have done little more than a screen test for future possibilities. That's selling it great. No, I mean, you're just like, if it does well, if you support it, then we can make a big budget one, guys. Yeah. So come on. If if, if you don't like this... Cut us some slack. (laughs) I don't know. I I would have tried to sell it better, but I think maybe at this point they knew the writing was on the wall that the movie wasn't coming out. 
So they just were like, he's just kind of in this interview, but that's some interesting stuff. I mean, some of the stuff is accurate and some of the stuff, you know, did happen. Uh, a lot of times these heroes in motion things we all find out don't really exist or don't happen. So he's pretty good on this one, which I'm pretty impressed by. And that is heroes in motion. So Adam, what do we have in Guy Gardner's gimmicks a go go? Oh boy. How bizarre. The gimmicks, they're still coming fast and furious, starting with Jim Shooter's Defiant comics, which have a huge double-page ad making a casting call for kids to become one of the good guys in a new comic book and trading card set. So it's really interesting here, Michael. This is one of the great gimmicks of comic books, in my opinion, that does not involve a cover enhancement. Okay, so this is literally you will become a character in a comic book. And so what you have to do is you are required to write a bio of what your superhero persona would be and then draw a comic book page of yourself with panels in action, which that's pretty involved, if you ask me. And you have to be able to both write and draw, which most people can't do both. I'm saying I'm a good writer. But I can't draw a straight line with a ruler. So if I had to draw myself in a comic, it would be pretty, pretty bad. Yeah, and we're going to definitely post this to social media so you can see this ad. But this is really interesting because they have incentives for the retailers even to promote this. It says the seven retailers who are chosen by the entrance as their favorite retailer will receive $10,000 worth of Defiant merchandise at the wholesale discount price. Oh, so they get to pay for it. Oh, yeah. great. And they have to move that inventory. Oh, lucky them. Uh, and also, they list all the different judges. You know, there's Jim Shooter, who's the creator, the series writer, Michael Barr, Janet Jackson, who is a very creative force behind Valiant and Defiant. Janet Jackson. The no, this is, a, this is another Janet Jackson. Oh. She, she was a colorist or came up with the coloring process for Valiant, which arguably wasn't great, but they were very proud of. And also she helped create a lot of characters, according to Jim Shooter. Didn't get the credit she deserved. But also in the voting panel, wizard publisher Garib Seamus. It even has a thing at the bottom. It says Defiant plus wizard equals fun. Now, in addition to being part of the comic, the seven grand prize winners receive $1,000, an all-expenses-paid trip to Anaheim, California, which will include an appearance at the Mile High Megastore, where the, quote, wish bomb that will grant the good guys their special powers will go off, a day at Disneyland, a creator contract with Defiant, a royalty fee to be split seven ways among the winners every time their likenesses are used now michael i will tell you i have the first two issues of the good guys we are not going to review them right now but the time will come because i have to get your opinion on how this all plays out this is merely the genesis of it all but i also have a personal connection to what they're talking about there where this wish bomb is going to go off so i can't wait (laughs) so the funny thing is you mentioned something about disneyland right like a like a free free pass to disneyland but there's no mention in there of 
airplane tickets or hotel accommodations oh. to get to Disneyland. That's what your $1,000 goes towards. I guess so, right? <laughs> <laughs> We're giving you a 1000 bucks. Now get yourself a cheap hotel and plane tickets. Ride the Amtrak. What are you going to do? Speaking of Defiant... They had another gimmick, which involved getting an exclusive Splatterball comic included with the order of a Plasm card binder. Why do they come up with these names? Splatterball? Like, <laughs> it, it, it literally, think of it this way. You're a 13-year-old kid, and you see the term Splatterball. I'm going to give you an exclusive Splatterball. It just sounds terrible. Well, and it's weird, too, because, you know, you know, Rollerball, that movie. Yeah. This is basically like their version in the Plasm universe of Rollerball. It's like this hyper-violent football-type game that they play. But what happened was the orders got screwed up in that only 15,000 of the binders were produced, and the retailers ordered a lot more than that because it was supposed to be 15,000 cases featuring six card binders each. So the retailers were mad, but then the second print orders were fulfilled immediately, so all is well. Defiant made good on it. But I will tell you, Michael, so this is all wrapped up in Plasm, right? And Plasm is listed in this issue. I wanted us to review it, but I'm going to spare you this as well. Well, this is our 25th issue. We're not going to go that way, but I do have to tell you, Plasm would have made you barf. And that is why I did not want to subject you to this. I know you have a weak stomach. Couldn't handle Dark Man. Here's our one-year anniversary. I'm going to torture you. <laughs> because Warriors of Plasm is all about this planet called the Org, which is a living organism planet that kind of looks like a heart. It opens pores to let the organic spaceships go in and out. People in this universe, it's just all like goo and sludge everywhere, and their whole existence is to conquer worlds where they mulch the people which is they just shred them into gore as they call it and then they take it and they imbue it into their planet the org and then the human well humanoid whatever they're made of the flesh of all these characters is what drives the planet creates plasm their energy source and currency you would just be like hold it back michael you'd be like oh i can't why are we reading this why are we know for the viewers or listeners to know i can't watch gray's anatomy's fake surgery scenes let alone spewing out pores of god knows what i don't know <laughs> yeah so i found it very interesting you know it made me think you know we've read a lot of these universes where they try to present this whole society and it's so convoluted it's so dense you can't get through it jim shooter is a very skilled writer he manages to make it all make sense at the same time not spoon feeding you the information so i guess for people who like universes like dune i have not gotten into dune but this feels like the version of dune that i could understand it's just less sad and more goo 
<laughs> Next up, Shooter's former home, Valiant Comics, is announcing Valiant Vision, their new 3D printing technology, to debut next month in Solar Man of the Atom number 29, which has been waiting in my long backs for a while to review on the podcast. So I'm looking forward to it. We'll go into all the technology behind this, which is not traditional 3D. They are very clear to say this is a new innovation. Uh, also solicited here is Batman number 500, which will feature the debut of the infamous bat armors we discussed, and a Joe Quesada foil cover with a die-cut over cover. So I guess I, I, I haven't looked at Batman number 500. I have a copy of it, but I think it's the newsstand edition. I have the original. The special cover? Okay. Yeah, so the special cover works kind of cool. So, like, on the front of it, you see, you know, Bruce Wayne Batman. But it's it's etched perfectly that when you open that, which isn't the full page of the thing, then you reveal the Azrael Batman suit. Oh, okay. That's pretty good. Yeah. Now, Reign of the Superman is wrapping up with Superman number 82 sporting a chromium cover and no ads. Ooh, now that's a pretty good gimmick. You just yeah. get a full story, no ads. Uh, while Adventures of Superman number 505 features a special holographic foil cover, which I looked up, and it's really just some shiny fireworks behind Superman flying. And, and then I looked up more, and I was like, apparently there was also a polybagged variant, which contained, quote, a limited numbered postcard featuring the cover of Superman number one. Hmm, Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> no, not interesting. That's lame. <laughs> it's lame. It's lame. <laughs> I was trying to play it off as being kind of, uh, you know, whatever. Oh, so I wanted to add one thing. So I know that I've pointed out many times that I don't like grotesque things. I don't. It, I, I have a weak stomach when it comes to that. But recently I read a story arc that I really enjoyed by one of my favorite writers and artists and storytellers in general, Gail Simone. She did a book called Clean Room, and it is fantastic, and it is utterly grotesque in a lot of cases, but it is really, really fun to read, and I just wanted to point that out because it's – I like these kind of, like, obscure stories, and this was a really, really good book, and it deals with, like, you know, monsters and nether realms, and it's gross, but it's interesting. Okay, so. I thought it was her adaptation of the 2008 film Sunshine Cleaning, starring Amy Adams and Emily Blunt, which for some reason I saw in theaters, and I don't remember why. <laughs> you may have been on a date with a girl, is what I'm going to say. most I'm likely. Gonna... <laughs> no, this is not that. This is like a, a woman who can kind of see demons even though they're possessing humanoid bodies and stuff like that yeah. like in the real world they look like you and me but like she can see that they're really monsters and she has to like hunt them and kill them and like extract their demons from their human hosts and stuff like that all right well next up here we have x-men number 25 is out this month with this hologram card on the cover like they've been doing for all their other books part of their big crossover but the real gimmick of this issue is actually the story it's wolverine getting his adamantium ripped out by magneto and then the years of craziness that ensue with bone claw logan and then it, he gets more feral and his nose disappears he starts wearing a pirate band 
bandana. It, ah, this is the beginning of the end for Wolverine for quite yeah. a few years. <laughs> so I wanted so badly to get this issue and never bought it because it sold out so fast in the comic book stores that you couldn't get it. You could not find this issue. And to date, I still have not read it. I've seen the images online, but I've never read the actual issue cover to cover. Well, there may only be a few days left by the time you hear this, listeners, but somebody give Michael your copy of X-Men 25 for Christmas. Come on. (laughs) You've had it long enough. You don't need it anymore. (laughs) Now, uh, Shadowhawk 2, issue number three, if that's not confusing enough, contains a pop-up cover of Shadowhawk finally revealing his identity. And I don't know if you've ever seen this, Michael, but it's pretty cool because it's literally like it's his helmet and his head and it's folded down but then you pull it out you know and then it pops up and it's his hands lifting the helmet off his head so it's a pretty cool mechanic you know just like the concept of it and Shadowhawk creator Jim Valentino was actually profiled on the last page of this issue and he mentions that he collects quote enhanced covers for comics he says I'm not much of like a toy collector or anything like that but you know enhanced covers for comics so even the pros could be sucked into the gimmicks it's kind of cool i mean is shadowhawk's reveal of who he is a big deal like yeah because this is the sequel miniseries throughout the whole first miniseries you don't know you who never he saw with his mask off you never found out who he was right but like yeah. but you know is, is he a nobody peter parker or is he, you know like or is he like you know some billionaire you know bruce wayne type that everyone it's, would more, it's like. more like tragic former secret military agent from what i recall okay but it's kind of a thing like and, and he's got he's hiv positive and there's all this stuff like that was worked into the character which was pretty interesting for the time oh wow interesting Oh, and he's African-American. That was the other thing, because I think I have the issue that follows this. And in there, he's actually battling this guy who's pretending to be Shadowhawk, but he's racist. So he reveals himself to this guy showing that he is black. And the guy's like, oh, you know, he can't believe it. You know, so it's it's that type of thing. That's the purpose, you know, of revealing his identity finally. That's interesting. Okay, that's a a good reason. I, I get it. I like it. All right. Finally, shoved in the way back of the magazine, it is an ad for what's being called Hard Case Live and In Your Face. And it is a contest being put on by Malibu Comics for their Ultraverse character, Hard Case. There are five grand prize winners who will receive a VHS containing a live-action trailer for one of Hard Case's movies, a behind-the-scenes filming documentary, a blooper reel, and interviews with Ultraverse writers. Now, you know, when we talked to PAX last episode about this Hard Case footage we found online, I assume that's what we were seeing, at least a snippet of. So that's... That's why it was just looked like a stuntman doing stunts, because it was supposed to be for one of his movies. Okay. And the grand prize winners also get first issues of Hard Case, The Strangers, and Prime, so the Ultraverse launch titles. But a hundred first prize winners just get the videotape, which you think would be the more exciting thing. Right, that's... A bigger get, I would think. I mean, yeah, but no, apparently the grand prize winners also get the comics, and that's all anybody really cares about. Which, I mean, can understand that too. But that means there are potentially 105 of these tapes out there somewhere, but none of them are on eBay. So if you guys are holding on to them... 
Give us a heads up. We want to see this tape. I want to know what happened to them. They've been recorded over to record episodes of Bob and, and uh, <laughs> Roseanne to find the moments that comics appeared. <laughs> Most likely. All right, Michael. Well, yeah, we're talking about the comics having the value. So why don't you take us into the Punisher's Price Guide. Following up on a report last month of Sotheby's auctioning off historic comic issues, Wizard has the results of that auction, where Fantastic Four number one sold for $27,600, and Amazing Fantasy number 15 sold for $39,100. On a side note, Steve Geppi, who was the president and CEO of Diamond Comic Distributions paid $112,500 for an original Scrooge McDuck money vault painted by legendary Disney Comics Carl Barks at the auction. Interesting. Geppi said, I probably would have paid up to $150,000. I've got the biggest collection of Barks paintings. Wow. Yeah, I mean, this guy, he's making a lot of money off distributing comics right now. Yeah, sure is. And, I mean, this is during the time of DuckTales, so this was probably a big, big thing. Scrooge McDuck was huge at this point because of the show DuckTales. Now, here's an, an important distinction for you, though, Michael. So Carl Barks drew Uncle Scrooge comics. And if you go now to a convention, there's this artist who kind of took over for him and drawing like those type of classic Disney things. And he has a sign on his booth that says, this is not DuckTales. Oh. <laughs> so that you you will offend the artists involved if you refer to any Disney comics as DuckTales. Unless it has that branding on it, it is not, even though DuckTales were inspired wow. by those comics. Interesting. But getting back to the big-ticket Marvel comics, we're going to see just how much these iconic books sell for in today's market. As of November 2020, on eBay... Fantastic Four number one sold for $75,000. Okay. I would have figured it would have been more still, but that's still a lot of money. And Amazing Fantasy number 15 sold for $109,000. So congratulations to Fantastic Four and Spider-Man. You are the ultimate fire stars. <laughs> so, Adam, what do we have in Jim and Todd's Hype Machine? So, 
Wizard News reports that Image is canceling all their new generation of books that were just hyped in a few issues back in Wizard Magazine. These books include Keith Giffen's Trencher, Larry Stroman's Tribe, Wildstar by Jerry Ordway, and Shaman's Tears by Mike Grell. Yes, they're being canceled so that Image can focus only on spinoff titles to the original creator's books, claiming, quote, there's so much image product out there, we've created our own competition. The other reason stated is that, quote, the other books didn't necessarily fit into the superhero universe that Image was founded on. Now, strangely enough, I was in an antique store where they had the entire run of Shaman's Tears comic books. And it went well into issue eight. It was still carrying the image logo, even though this article states that it was going to end at issue four. So I'm very curious to know, like, did Mike Grell have some sort of, like, contract? He's like, no, you guys said you were going to publish X number of months or something, and they had to make good on it. Like, it's really kind of interesting because in the article, they went to all the different publishers. We talked to Mike Richardson at Dark Horse. We talked to Jim Shooter, so on and so forth. And they all said, yes, we would generally be interested in looking at the quality of these stories, and we would consider publishing them. Yeah, it's like, it's good enough for Image. It's good enough for us (laughs) but yeah i just thought that was so interesting it's like we tried to expand our line of books uh but they might have been selling more than our books so (laughs) which i don't think was the case i think it was just they were saying that there's so many books now with an image logo on the cover and the image logo is what's selling the book so if somebody is going to buy that over wildcats number three You know, like, they don't want that to happen. Right, makes sense. Now, speaking of Wildcats, this issue is heavy on ads for Jim Lee comics, but also, as we discussed, sports a cover of Death Blow, which is the subject of Jim Lee's interview in this issue. And this is a strange choice, because as we have previously reported, Jim was cutting back the release schedule of Death Blow, making it a quarterly book so that he could focus more on Wildcats. So why promote a book that fans won't be able to read very often or buy you know like you you said you're gonna slow down production on that jim so again must have had a lot of wheels in motion already up to this point you know what's funny though so like i follow jim lee on instagram and obviously he's one of the highest if not the highest ranking person at dc comics now but he oftentimes like shows himself doing solicitations some of that of things that he's illustrating and he sells on ebay and he's done stuff like wolverine and other characters but he has never in probably the three years i've been following him made mention of any image characters he's ever created other than grifter not once grifter's the one everybody wants baby i guess so uh, now, hilariously, Wizard calls out the fact that both Shaman's Tears number one, Tribe number one, Shadowhawk, and Deathblow number one all had similar black cover gimmicks. But Jim claims that he, quote, had the idea for the Deathblow cover a long, long time ago, and it was supposed to come out first, but had production delays, which he explains, quote, when you get into this kind of cover technology, you find that the red foil, which is what the letters on the Deathblow cover were, is very hard to deal with. The gold and silver, apparently, is simple. For whatever reason, I'm staying away from that kind of stuff. (laughs) Blame it on the printer, and then everybody else stole my idea. (laughs) 
But uh, Wizard Market Watch reports that Todd McFarlane will neither write nor draw issue 16 of Spawn. Instead, he's handing over the reins to Greg Capullo and Grant Morrison. In fact, that is the creative team that continues on without him. So, yeah, I mean, he was really, I think, just looking to get out of doing the art. You know, he's like, I'm going to be a mogul. I'm going to be, you know, running a company. Uh, I created something that's popular enough. Somebody else do it. Yeah, I think I think he wanted to get heavier into the action figure thing, which is really where he made his money over time. Yeah. Now, more details about the Spawn and Batman crossover state that it will now be two separate prestige format books. One is produced by Image and the other by DC with Len Wein, Chuck Dixon, and Doug Mensch writing. Why do you need three people to write this? But Klaus Janssen is going to be providing the art. But interestingly enough, there's still no mention that Frank Miller is going to be writing the McFarlane issue, which ends up being the case. So I'm sure we'll hear about that soon enough because we're not too far away from, like I say, the Spawn Batman crossover cover of Wizard. Finally, in McFarlane news, it's reported that Todd's other Bat-Person crossover with Valeria the She-Bat concludes this month in issue four of that book from Continuity Comics. But through careful research, we finally know the truth. Yes, Michael, we've been tracking this for a long time. A long time. It feels like a lifetime. Yeah, I've been searching eBay for months. Does this book exist? Where is it? Why is nobody selling it? Is it so collectible nobody wanted to get rid of it? No. It turns out issues three and four never happened. No way. Really? So I ended up with a copy of Valeria the She-Bat number one, which I ordered and thought it was, you know, number three. But no, it just, it doesn't exist. It's something we never got. And it was solicited in, in like previews, I think. But that was as far as it went. That was the only time you ever saw the two characters drawn together. It just is not something that came together for Continuity Comics or Todd McFarlane. So it, the mystery is finally solved. Wow. Interesting. Now, before we get to the final tally, we wanted to make this edition of Jim and Todd's Hype Machine extra special. It's our 25th issue, after all. So, since Michael is a filmmaker and I run a fake movie podcast, we thought it would be fun to cast an Image Comics biopic with 90s actors. So, for example, if Rob Liefeld convinced his pal Steven Spielberg to make a movie about the Image Boys, who would play those seven founders in this movie? So we're going to go down the list. Michael and I will each give our casting choice. We'll see if we can come to a unanimous decision. Okay. So, M Michael, who did you pick for Rob Liefeld? Matt Damon. Oh, that was my choice, too. Was There's really? nobody else. It could only be, right? It could only be Matt. They were, like, the perfectly same age. They had the same color hair. Yes. S similar build. It was, like, the obvious choice for me. Yeah, like, if you watch Goodwill Hunting, that's, like, the temperament, everything. That's Rob Liefeld. Yeah. Like, that's perfect. Okay, how about... Todd McFarlane. I picked Sean Penn. Ooh, I could see that. Now, I went a different way because I focus on the oddball nature of Todd McFarlane. So I went for a real character actor. I know Sean Penn is a character actor, more on the dramatic side. I chose John Turturro. Interesting. So, like, I, I, I the reason why I went with Sean Penn was, again, that, you know, he plays these sort of extreme sort of characters 
and they had a similar facial structure at the, at that time. And that's kind of why I went to, sh- I, I looked at John Tatiro, but I thought he was like a little too tall, a little too like Italian. And that's why I didn't go with it for that. I mean, I, I could go with Sean Penn. Cause I mean, yeah, you want Matt Damon and Sean Penn in your image movie. Go for it. Yeah, All exactly. right. Now for Jim Lee, we had a discussion off air. There weren't a lot of prominent Asian actors in the 90s, unfortunately. But I think that both of us were able to find some good choices. So who did you pick? So I went from Dragon, the Bruce Lee story, Jason Scott Lee. I just was watching him in the live-action Mulan last night. Were you really? Yeah, he's intense looking now, dude. I mean, he's a little bit older. He's a little more grizzled, Grizzled? you know? But yeah, I think he would be a good choice for sure. But I had another choice who I thought would be good was Daniel Day Kim. Ooh. You know, he's on Hawaii Five O. Yeah, but was I, he yeah. was he acting back then? I looked it up, and he actually was on an episode of Nightman based on the Ultraverse comic book in 1997. Oh wow, interesting. See, yeah, he was acting. He's older than he looks. I think is what it is. So yeah, so either either one I think could work, but I I think it's hard to say because I think back then the star power you know was with Jason Scott Lee because yeah. he had done Dragon the Bruce Lee story in that Jungle Book movie. So I think we got to go with Jason Scott Lee. Okay, cool. Now, the next one, also a little harder, because I don't know uh, who you're going to find to fit the vibe of the invisible man of image, Will Sportacio. Oh, I knocked this one out of the park. Oh, yeah? Yeah, you don't even have a shot at this one. <laughs> so this was a, a really, really close call, and I wrote down both names because I feel like either one would be a good honorable mention. So my main choice was... Dante Baxo, who plays Rufio in Hook. Didn't go with him, but I thought of him. And then my other option was Lou Diamond Phillips. <laughs> now, Michael, I think what you did was you Google searched Filipino actors, didn't <laughs> I did, you? I did, yeah. That's what I did, too. <laughs> Come on, I didn't know. I had, did you hard. know that Lou Diamond Phillips was Filipino? I did not know that. Yeah, that was kind of cool. <laughs> that was kind of cool. Now, my choice, because I figured, you know, back in the 90s especially, if you're Chinese or Japanese, like, they didn't care. There's, like, you're vaguely Asian, you get to play any type <laughs> of character. You're vaguely Asian. That's how it you was could, back You then. could also be Hawaiian, but we'll be. Uh, yeah. So, to me, I went with Bobby Lee, who was on Mad TV in the late 90s. Okay, yeah. Because I, I thought that. Will Sportacio's this character that nobody really, you know, like, he did Wetworks, but he doesn't have a personality that everybody's aware of, like all the other others and so i felt like bring in a funny guy who make him like the guy just like making quips even if that's not will sportacio at all you know like they would just write him that way okay fair enough but yeah uh, the only thing like dante basco to me i was just like he would be so young at the time but bobby lee wouldn't be that much older the, either the picture you sent me of of all of them yeah he looks very young in that picture it's true so that's why they were yeah, yeah, they were early 20s, yeah. So next up is Jim Valentino, who was the elder statesman of Image. So who did you find to play Jim Valentino, creator of Shadowhawk? I went with Vincent D'Onofrio. Hmm. I mean, because he could do it all? Because <laughs> literally he could play, he's, he's a chameleon. And, you know, 
He also is Italian, so I was like, all right, cool, I'll go with that. So, you know, that's kind of how I went with it. Yeah. Now, I went a different way because I wanted a seasoned actor who might have some vague, like Jim Valentino has a very distinctive very face. Very distinct look. Yeah. It's hard to cast anybody that looks like Jim Valentino, but I went with Henry Winkler. The Fonz, you know, he was doing the Water Boy. He was in the Scream movies. Felt like he could offer sage advice to okay. the other younger members of the Image crew. I could see that. All right, fine. We'll go. Well, fair enough. All right, I'll, I'll give you that one. Cool. All right, now we gotta go with the heartthrob of the Image group. That's right, Mister Mark Silvestri. So, who did you find to play this Adonis? I went with Tim Robbins. What? What are you... Did, what? <laughs> Tim Rob... That goofball? I don't understand. Hey, by the way, that or that uh, first girlfriend I mentioned earlier who looked like Darlene from Roseanne, she was a camp counselor in the summers, and her camp is where Susan Sarandon and Tim Robbins took their kids. Oh, really? So she was, always, she was like, oh, yeah, they would always come on the parents' night. They were really nice. Tim Robbins. No! You know why I chose Because he's so tall, and they're both tall. Well, he's tall, but he's goofy looking, and he's <laughs> pale, and he's got... It's, no. There's only one choice for this. It's George Clooney. Mark Silvestri is George Clooney. Come on. Are you building the Ocean's Eleven of comics? <laughs> Oh, man, you got to have a heartthrob in there. Come on. <laughs> we got Matt Damon in there. Yeah. All right. Uh, now, kind of on the other end of the spectrum, no disrespect to Eric Larson, but he is balding. You know, he's just, he's kind of your average guy. So who do you have playing Eric Larson? Oh, I got this one. This one. I, this was like, it came to me in a vision <laughs> and it was perfect. And it's literally, again, I had a dead tie with this one. Paul Giamatti or John C. Riley? Wow. Now, John C. Riley definitely passed through my mind. I think he would be awesome in the role. The other option I was thinking of was Ron Howard's brother. <laughs> Clint Howard, come on. <laughs> what do you think you're doing? But I was trying to find a lookalike. You know, I was just like, who could do this? And someone who also has a connection to the world of comics. I chose Derek Mears. Do you know Derek Mears? No. He plays Swamp Thing in the DC Swamp Thing series, okay? But if you've ever seen him out of costume, he also played Jason in the Friday the 13th remake. He's a huge guy, but he's just, he's like a very pale, bald guy, but he's got a look that's kind of similar to Eric Larson. He'd be a giant, that's okay, Eric Larson's pretty tall too, so. <laughs> that's weird. You're weird. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but I will go with John C. Riley. Okay, good. As Eric Larson. I love it. That was, that's, looks like it's going to be a good movie. Get Spielberg to direct. It'll be uh, the greatest thing since Saving <laughs> Private Ryan. <laughs> but the, in the final tally of this issue, getting back to business, Jim had nine mentions and Todd had seven, which brings our tally total to Jim 152 and Todd 134. Uh, Jim is running away with this holy moly okay michael now it's time for robin's reading rainbow now 
this being our 25th episode, we're doing something special with Robin's Reading Rainbow this time. Michael had the great idea to simulcast this particular review, so in addition to hearing it on this episode, you could also go to YouTube and see an extended version of the review in video form, where we actually show pages from the comic, so you can get a visual take on the whole experience. So we just wanted to make you aware of that little new addition to Robin's Reading Rainbow, just trying to make it something extra special for all of you. And now, let's get into the review. And this week we have a very interesting, I want to say it's a, a groundbreaking, revolutionary comic that changes the game in so many different ways, and it is a valiant comic, Shadow Man number 19. Featuring... Aerosmith. Yep, this is a crossover of rock and roll and superhero comics, but you know, you talked about this being groundbreaking, Michael. Certainly not the first time this was done. I am a huge Kiss fan, and I have the Marvel Super Special printed in real Kiss blood. That's right, they drop their blood into the ink vats, okay? So this is special, but this is where, you know, The actual band were the heroes. They were getting their own comic. They were kind of being reinterpreted. It happened again when they reunited in the 90s and Todd McFarlane published Kiss Uh. Psycho Circus. (laughs) I have all those issues. I was religious. Yeah, well, first, can can you explain who Shadow Man is? Because I, other than reading this particular issue, know nothing about the character and I'd like to learn a little bit. Yes. So I went back, I I read the first few issues to kind of get a, where was he at the beginning and where did he end up? Basically, he is a jazz musician in New Orleans named Jack Bonifaci, Boniface, I don't know how they say it (laughs) down in New Orleans, but he essentially takes a woman home one night after a gig and she turns out to be some type of demon monster who bites him on the neck and she gets chased away while he's passing out when he wakes up though he starts noticing whenever it becomes night he gets these strange feelings like he belongs in the night and he calls it my night (laughs) and so he starts like realizing he has powers he starts stopping all these petty crimes like around town but he's like stronger he's faster he's more agile he could sort of float a little bit when he jumps so he could jump farther do things like that and then he meets up with his housekeeper named Nettie something like that Mm -hmm. this old lady and she tells him all about the voodoo and that he got infected with this dark power and now he is this voodoo character called the Shadow Man. Ah. And so she makes him his costume and everything. And it's supposedly like that's his symbol, you know, the symbol right here that's kind of strange uh, is is supposed to be like his soul coming out through the shadows. Okay. You know? so that, I, I, I thought it was more like a kind of a, like a voodoo doll type of a thing. Because th- there's a, a heavy voodoo element to this comic that I noticed when I was reading through it. Like there's a voodoo doll. There's like a, like a shaman of some sorts. And I'll, let's put it this way. I was a bit confused. The art is actually pretty interesting. The art is pretty good. I was, and it's not like some of the other like image comics where there's just like nonstop action from the word go. And there's a little bit more story involved, which I, which I enjoyed. The one thing that I wanted to point out is first of all, Steven Tyler's pretty jacked in this, which <laughs> he's not really jacked in real life. And second of all, he's like a master martial artist, which I found very interesting. 
<laughs> hey, you got to do something when you're not on stage, right? We don't know. But so here's the thing. Who did know was one of the publishers at Valiant, one of the founders of Voyager Communications, who was like the parent company of Valiant Comics, was Steve Mazarski. Okay. And Steve Mazarski was a lawyer who then became a rock and roll band manager or vice versa. I don't know if he was doing them simultaneously or started in one or the other, but he was very proud that he managed the Allman Brothers band, who I guess our parents might've been fans of the Allman Brothers. I, I like the Allman Brothers, come on. You don't like Midnight Rider? Uh, okay, there you go. But then he also managed Aerosmith for many years. Okay. And so he had that connection to them. And he said that as he was getting into the comics industry, he realized there was a lot of crossover between rock and roll and comics in terms of fandom. You know, like and, and people were into that. So he said, well, I've got this connection. Why don't I bring Aerosmith into this comic book continuity and make them the stars of this? Because I know the characters. I know what we could put forth in their personalities. Mm. So I'm sure if you're a super diehard Aerosmith fan, there's a lot of inside jokes here that you would get. Now, I think you and I both, Michael, we've said we enjoy Aerosmith. They were a huge part of the 90s. And, like and in this particular time, they were huge. They were, they were pumping out new albums for the first time in a while right now. Like a lot was happening around Aerosmith. And it was kind of interesting about that. And if you were to think of rock bands to meld with a comic, this was probably the right band at the right time to be in this story around this character. Well, and here's a fun fact for you, Michael. Aerosmith already was on the road to having a connection to comic books after this. Do you know which member of Aerosmith did the theme song for the 1994 Spider-Man cartoon? Was it Joe Perry? Yeah. Okay. I, I, yeah. I kind of knew that, yeah. Yeah, so that's that's all Joe Perry guitar work there. So it's one of those things that's, you know, they started here and it just carried forward after that, which is pretty neat. So cool. in this comic, what I like about it is, you know, it says on the cover just featuring Aerosmith. I like that it doesn't just feature them for it, like two panels, like it's they're like, in the background. They're almost, on. I would say, almost every page. Like, yeah, at least Steven Tyler's on almost every page. Yeah, and it, it, it is introduced. It's interesting featuring Steven Tyler and Aerosmith. Yeah. So he definitely wanted his name above the marquee there. Oh, of know. course. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> definitely so, the face of the band. So the first question I had for you was in the very beginning of the issue, there's this like long haired, redheaded guy in overalls and no shirt. And the weird thing about it is he's after locks of Steven Tyler's hair. <laughs> now, is this also the Shadow Man, but like in his normal persona? No, no. So the first they show the Shadow Man talking to Aerosmith, and they're talking about how he used to jam with them, and they want him to like come on tour with them because he's such a great saxophonist. And he's like, nah, I like to be in New Orleans, you know? But yeah, then there's this guy sneaking into Steven Tyler's dressing room stealing his clothes, stealing a lock of his hair. And then meanwhile, there's also these zombie businessmen who come in yeah. and they've been resurrected. They, they were dead and they're now alive again. So they're attacking the band. So literally like, yeah, Steven Tyler's having a knockdown, you know, fight with this guy who's trying to steal it, like the ultimate stalker, I guess yeah. you would call it. And then the rest of the band has to fight these zombies along with Dark, or with Shadow Man. I almost said Dark Man. <laughs> <laughs> Bring up some bad memories for you, Michael. Yeah, but he doesn't want to give away his secret identity at first, so he's just fighting, you know, but then 
he eventually reveals that he knows about all this darkness and the dark itself is master dark who is like this you know big bad voodoo daddy if you will any mm. fans of that band my apologies <laughs> but <laughs> but but he is the one pulling the strings trying to terrorize shadow man you know that's kind of like his ongoing thing at this time in the stories so it's really interesting though there's a kind of couple different things at play right one is that steven tyler the lock of his hair and the clothes and all of that is part of a plot for this particular stalker, I think they call him Moon Boy or Moon Man or yeah, something, something like, like that. that. I think it's Moon Boy, yeah. So what was his plot, Michael? Do you recall what he wanted out of the deal with Master Dark? So basically, like, they make a voodoo doll of Steven Tyler out of the lock of hair and the shra- shrouds of clothes because this, like, Moon Boy wants to become Steven Tyler. And, like, there's this interesting moment where, like, the band is on stage and and Steven Tyler's performing and singing, and all of a sudden he can't sing. And this guy is sitting up in the rafters, and he's like, I am becoming Steven Tyler, or something like that. (laughs) Really? I was like, okay, I'm I'm in. I'm I'm, I'm following this this journey where we're going. (laughs) Yeah. And so, with that going on, also, though, what's so funny is that they put this spell on Steven Tyler where he has to run. Mm-hmm. And he can't stop running. So he's running through the streets of New Orleans, you know, and you have Shadow Man who's chasing him, trying to help him stop him. So but he can't control himself. So he's fighting Shadow Man. So Steven Tyler, like you say, he's just, he's a brawler in this, yeah. man. Basically, like, they, so that, that whole thing is going on. Eventually, they snap him out of it. And then Steven Tyler has to confront this guy who now literally, like, he has, like, painted on, like, Joker lipstick. Yes. <laughs> and this is where I got confused for a minute because now, like, Shadow Man's got black hair. Steven Tyler's got black hair. This stalker has black hair. They all kind of look a little bit the same other than this, you know, you know, guy kind of with this giant Joker smile. And I'm like, okay, what is going on? Who's fighting who? It's getting a little confusing, but it was interesting because, like, the idea is they're trying to get this voodoo doll away from this guy to get steven tyler back into control of his own body and everything his own self yeah so that that was what i would say was i felt was like the strongest point of this is they literally said let's take a member of the band let's make the the story about him shadow man is kind of a secondary character in this only he knows more than they do right he knows what's going on and like that he changes full into shadow man right during the process and he talks about like i'm trying to change my voice so they won't recognize me you know so <laughs> we don't know what type of voice he was putting on but he just he's doing all that with them and then at the end it actually shows them you know performing live and singing songs you yeah know? so you actually have like aerosmith lyrics printed in the book and all of that so yeah so overall like this was a kind of a story where it could have been really stupid and it wasn't it was it a, was it was a good one-off adventure. You yeah, know? it, it was a guest exactly. Star. It was a good one-off standalone story. I would have liked to have known a little bit more about Shadow Man's backstory because, like, you know, the idea behind a story like this is to entice rock and roll fans to want to buy a comic book. But you dive into this and you don't know who Shadow Man is. Essentially, I would have liked to maybe even if it was two or three panels, it's like a flashback to kind of establish that, which they do oftentimes in comics. I, I mean, they do it for Batman every every couple of months, you know. <laughs> but other than that, as a standalone story, it was a good story. It was it was good art. It wasn't over the top, you know, crazy action. You don't know what's going on. It had a small group of characters. It was it was a decent story. I was 
pleasantly surprised and I was pleased that we chose to read this book because I, I basically said this to Adam in a previous I'm like, did you see this cover? We gotta talk about this. And then sure enough, here we are talking about it. And, I, and I'm I'm glad I bought it. I, I bought it on Comicsology for a buck ninety-nine and it, it was good. It was worth it. Yeah, and it's one of those things where Aerosmith also at this time, you gotta recall, so they're in comic books. They were guesting on Saturday Night Live, but mm-hmm. then also doing skits, you know, on Wayne's yeah. World. Then they were in Wayne's World too. Yeah, you know, like, they, like they, they were definitely just expanding their media reach at yeah. this time. And this album, Get a Grip, you know, actually ended up being their biggest selling album of all time all like time worldwide. Sure. yeah yeah so i mean this was this was their their peak period here the other thing i'll just bring up though is so in the back of the issue there's a report that steve mazarski writes up where he's talking about so obviously i have this connection with the band so in addition to getting their likenesses in the comic they actually came to a comic convention with us and they signed copies of this book and they got to meet the fans. And a lot of the people said, oh, I already saw you on tour a couple times and you're great. You know, and so they, they were really excited to be involved with comic book fans. They thought it was a real neat, uh, you know, environment to, to find themselves to be a part of. And so I just, I think it's interesting that, you know, that crossover has tried to happen in even crazier ways. Mm-hmm. And there was a Marvel comic called Night Cat where Marvel was trying to create their own pop star superhero, which we got to cover someday. Wait, didn't they have Dazzler? Well, well, Dazzler was their original thing, right? Right. Yeah, the late 70s. They're like, we're doing, you know, Dazzler as a movie. Oh, wait, it didn't happen. It'll just be a graphic novel. And everything fell apart. But yeah, so they tried again in like the early 90s. Oh, boy. We'll we'll get to, stay tuned for that, guys, because we'll probably be getting (laughs) to that one, I'm sure. (laughs) Yeah, but, you know, so we hope that you enjoyed this particular review. Hope that it, caught your interest there if you're an aerosmith fan finding us for the first time hey come on we're just comic book uh, reviewers we don't walk on water wait a minute is that a, is that aerosmith or ozzy osborne but i'm getting i'm getting my, my 90s rock groups mixed you're mixing genres here <laughs> well michael that is it for episode 25 thanks to everyone who has been on the wizard's journey with us also before we go one special shout out to our man in the chair our secret producer jeremy you don't hear from jeremy on the show but he is the man behind the scenes that is getting the show posted every week he is handling our episode art and helps us take care of each little modification just to make it a little extra special for all of you he manages all the technical things that we could figure out sure but we just don't have time for it and he is willing to help in that way so he is our superhero so jeremy big thanks to you buddy of course another big thank you to mickey and jason at the retro network they are the ones who made the initial investment to buy a huge lot of wizard magazines so that we could do this show we are so grateful to them and hey don't forget to enter the giveaway by sending us a picture of yourself with a copy of wizard or a 90s comic using hashtag wizards 25 check out the t public store to get your official wizards the podcast guide to comics merch get ready for wizard the patreon guide to comics don't forget to check us out on our social media on twitter it's at wizards comics on instagram it's wizards underscore comics and until next time keep your books back and boarded
has been a presentation of the Retro Network.